Now, would you turn uh, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18? We're picking up our studies in the Gospel of Luke. We come uh, to this well-known section in Luke chapter 18 and verse 15. Luke chapter 18 and verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Amen. I mean, oh God will always bless the reading of his word. I heard about a Sunday school teacher in Belfast in the Shankill Road who was asking her class what they wanted to do when they grew up. And one little boy answered in all innocence, he says, I'd like to be a paramilitary. His father was a paramilitary, his uncle was a paramilitary, and his brother was a paramilitary. And so it was the most natural thing in the world for him to say that he wanted to be a paramilitary too. That boy became the special focus of prayer for the church, special interest uh, for the Sunday school teacher, and he was subsequently converted as a child, and now he's a missionary in India. But for the grace of God, he may very well have been a paramilitary. And that highlights for us that although it's possible to be converted at any age, the younger, the better. Because the younger a person comes to faith, the more they're protected and preserved from the disfiguring effect of sin on their lives. We sometimes speak of those who have been saved out of drunkenness and violence and immorality, and they say, well, you know, they have a great testimony. But the greatest testimony is the conversion of a child who, because uh, they are converted early in life, are spared from the disfiguring effects of sin upon their lives. Polycarp, the early church father, was saved at nine. Matthew Henry, the Bible translator or commentator, was saved at 11. Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian and uh, the first president of Princeton, was converted at seven. Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, was converted at nine. Corrie ten Boom was converted at five. Count Nicholas Sindendorf of the Moravian Church was converted at four, Spurgeon was 15, and William Booth was 15. When it comes to salvation, the younger the better, before the disfigurement of uh, sin can leave an imprint upon the life. One occasion after returning from a mission, someone asked D.L. Moody how many people were converted at the mission, to which D.L. Moody replied, two and a half. What do you mean, two adults and a child? No, says D.L. Moody, two children and an adult. The adult only has half a life to give to Jesus, but the child has all of their lives to give to Jesus. Now, of course, you can't presume on the grace of God and demand of God the timing of anybody's conversion. Salvation is a divine prerogative. But there is no doubt that God himself is deeply interested in the spiritual well-being of children, And our Lord, during his earthly ministry, displayed a particular interest in children. And that's what we see in these verses that's before us. I want you to notice four things. First of all, the concern Jesus displays. Look at verse 15. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Here we see parents bringing 
Infants, that word means um, nursing children, so it's really babies, bringing babies to Jesus. And these parents bring their babies to Jesus that they might, that the Lord might touch them. Now, when you compare the gospel records, you discover that that touch involved Jesus laying on his hand, laying his hands on the, on the children and blessing them. Now, that was a Jewish tradition that dated back to the time of Jacob. You remember when Jacob placed his hands on the heads of his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and pronounced a blessing. And so a tradition developed that in or around a child's first birthday, they would bring the child to the synagogue or seek out a rabbi that he might lay his hands on the child and pray for them. And some of those prayers are still in existence. They have been preserved for us. One of them, the most common, reads that, that he would grow up famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and fruitful in good works. Now, the force of the original is that they kept bringing their children uh, to Jesus. There was a steady stream of parents seeking out Jesus, and we're told the disciples kept um, uh, rebuking them, chasing them away. Mark tells us that Jesus was in the house, and Matthew tells us that literally a mega multitude of parents and children were present. So it seems that either at the fringe of this multitude or perhaps at the door of the house, if Jesus was in the house, these disciples are turning these parents away. Now, we're not sure sure of the motives of the disciples. At best, they were trying to protect Jesus from repeated interruptions. And at worst, they saw his involvement with children as a sheer waste of time. Now, throughout the Roman Empire, there was a very hostile attitude to children. There was a primitive form of abortion that existed uh, in Roman times. And if children were born and they weren't really wanted, they would just dump the children out with the trash. And uh, particularly girls, because girls were seen of no value. And then um, people might pick those children up uh, to train them to be prostitutes or to be slaves. Jewish society, because of the condition, uh, uh, conditioning and, and revelation of the Old Testament, had a higher view of children, but that Victorian adage uh, still applied in ancient times that children should be seen and not heard. It was considered to be inappropriate, effeminate, for an older man to have an interest in children. Uh, I remember when the boys were born, I was out pushing the pram, and somebody stopped me and said, you know, men don't push prams. Uh, this idea that it's a bit girly for a man to lure himself to push a pram with, with children in it. But notice Jesus' response. Mark tells us in Mark 10 and verse 14 that our Lord, when he saw what was happening, was indignant. The authorized version says, much displeased. Eugene Peterson translates it as irate. He was furious with the disciples. Jesus was angry with what they were doing in this attitude that they had towards children. And notice his reaction then in verse 16, but Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come on to me. Now, the word in verse 16 
is different than the word in verse 15. In verse 15, it's used of nursing children for babies, for infants. In verse 16, it's the word that normally applies to children. So he calls not just the babies, he calls all the children to himself. Mark tells us he took, us, he took them in his arms and blessed them. Now, what does that tell us about Jesus? Well, it tells us that he was a lover of children. It tells us that he was interested in children. It tells us that he had time for children. It tells us that he was concerned for children. And something that I I think is very significant, that he called the children and they came to him. They weren't afraid of him. He called them and they came. You know the way children, young children particularly, can make strange. And, uh, and when uh, even a grandparent comes in, sometimes it takes a, a little while for them to warm up. But not with Jesus. He called them. And the children came to him. There was something uh, magnetic about the personality of the Lord that even children were drawn to him. The disciples didn't want anything as trivial as children interrupting the preaching of Jesus. He's too important. But Jesus interrupted his preaching to take time with children. Bring the children to me. He says they're important to me. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I don't know how politically correct that is now and whether you should be singing it, but it's true. Jesus loves kids. Jesus had time for kids. And if Jesus loved kids, we should love kids too. When kids come to church, when children come to church, they should feel at home. They should feel loved. They should feel cared for. They should feel that the adults in church have an interest in them. The only thing I I need to say is if you're a child, Jesus loves you. And he wants you to come to him. Even as a child, Jesus loves children. The compassion Jesus displays. The second thing I want you to notice is the challenge Jesus gives. In this whole incident, we not only see the compassion of Jesus towards children, but we see a challenge to Christians in regard to children. In rebuking the disciples, he says there, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. In other words, disciples or followers of Jesus must do everything, um, uh, sorry, must do nothing to prevent children from coming to Jesus. And if that is true, the opposite also must be true, that they must do everything in their power to bring children to Jesus. The church generally and Christians individually must be child-focused, child-friendly, child-centered. It is a mistake to think that the church in its ministries and its activities exists only for adults. It is the consistent testimony of Scripture that children are to be the special focus and spiritual interest of the people of God. The psalmist says in Psalm 78, we will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next 
generation, the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and His wonders He has done. We have a duty to bring children to Jesus and to do nothing that will prevent children from coming to Jesus. Jesus rebukes and is angry with the disciples for keeping children from him. Remember in Luke 9, Jesus made a little child stand uh, beside him and said, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. In Matthew 9, he says, if anyone causes any of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them that a millstone was tied around their neck and they would be drowned in the depths of the sea. So the challenge then is twofold. We must do everything we can to bring children to Jesus, and we must not do anything to hinder children coming to Jesus. How does this work in practice? Well, the primary application is to parents. In Deuteronomy 6, the portion that uh, Alex read to us, the Shema, that, that great truth, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That was the truth that was to be tied to the foreheads. You know, Orthodox Jews have this, these little pouches tied to their foreheads and to their wrists and then to the doorposts of their homes. That, th- these are the words that were contained in those pouches. And then Moses says to parents, impress them on your children. Uh, uh, Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. At every point in their lives, you are to confront them with eternal truth. So you're out for a walk or you're on holiday and you see this majestic um, sunset. And you say to your children, isn't God good? Isn't God powerful in his design? You look up at the heavens and you see the stars in a clear night. And you tell your children that the nearest star is 4.6 million light years away. And the furthest is 3,200 million light years away. And that's only in our galaxy. But you tell them, Psalm 8, that the stars are the work of his fingers. And you're watching TV and something inappropriate comes on the television. You don't immediately spring forward to switch it off to hide your blushes, but you tell them that God's design is one man and one woman in a committed relationship. Not uh, two men or, or two women, but one man and one woman committed together with no intrusion from a third party. You confront them with the truth at every turn. You read the Bible to them and you explain the Bible to them. I am amazed, amazed at how many Christian uh, children who have grown up and have told me that their parents never opened the Bible in their homes from one week to the next. The Bible was never opened. That's that's just not right. The primary responsibility is for parents, for fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, Paul says, but bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Are you hindering your children from coming to Christ? By failing to teach them, by failing to discipline them, by being too harsh with them. Do not hinder them, says Jesus. There's a challenge not only to parents, but to the church. The church must be interested 
uh, and dedicated to this task of bringing children to Jesus. The church must, must teach them, work with them, bear with them. If they're to be faithful to what Jesus says, not to dumb down and sugarcoat um, um, saccharine sayings, but to teach them the deep truths. And people say children can grasp them. Children can grasp deep truth as long as it's explained simply to them. I think actually older people have have a, a, a trouble grasping spiritual truth, the new spiritual truth, because they're prejudiced in their thinking and they're ingrained in their thinking. But children have a capacity to grasp the deep things of the Word of God if it's presented to them correctly. And we must endeavor to be relevant to children and bring children to Jesus as a church. We had a man in uh, our first church, and whenever a child made a noise in church, he would tap them on the shoulder and he would say, take them out. There's a crash. Well, you know, I, I love hearing children cry out in church. And we're told to suffer little children, not to put up with them. Bill Harrison crying out when he saw his grandfather on the drums this morning uh, with delight. I love that. Because you know what's worse than not having Harrison cry out when uh, he sees his grandfather on the drums? is having no children cry out in the service whatsoever. Now you say, well, I'm easily distracted. Well, here's a tip. Move to the front, take notes, and uh, it'll not bother you anymore. Do you want to belong to a church that has no children? And I don't want to belong to a church like that. I want children here, and I want all the noise and the rough and tumble that children bring to the life of a church, because we are to suffer the little children uh, and bring them to Jesus. The third thing I want you to notice is the comfort Jesus explains. One of the hardest funerals I've ever had to conduct was that of a premature baby who lived only a few hours um, after being born at 21 weeks. And to see the father carry that little white coffin from the hearse to the grave and a young mother breaking her heart over the loss of her first child was, was heart-wrenching. And although the hospital were great in allowing the parents to see and hold the child and taking a photograph and giving handprints and footprints uh, of the child, it was very hard to know as a pastor what to say in that situation. The comfort that I did bring in that situation was I believed that child was now with Jesus. And I based that comfort on this particular text. Notice carefully what Jesus says. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To such belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That kingdom of God, that invisible spiritual kingdom to which all Christians belong, has children in it. Who are the such? For to such is the kingdom of God. The such were these little ones coming to Jesus. The little children in verses 16 and the babies of verse 15. And at the very least, Jesus is teaching that there are babies and children in the kingdom. He doesn't say the kingdom of God belongs to these 
But he says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, to this class, to this group. Babies and, and children belong to the kingdom. I please don't misunderstand me. This has nothing to do with baptism. This has nothing to do with covenant. This has nothing to do with children being in a state of innocence. Jesus is simply making the statement that there are children and babies who are members of the eternal kingdom. It's a general statement. If Jesus wanted to teach about the covenantal position of children, this would have been the place to do it. But he doesn't. He makes the general statement that children belong to the kingdom. Babies because they're babies and children because they're children are members of God's kingdom. Now, we know that children are sinful and need to be forgiven. David David says in Psalm 51 that he was sinful from birth, sinful from the time his mother conceived him. He says in Psalm 58 and verse 3, even from birth the wicked go astray, from the womb they are wayward and speak lies. Proverbs tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. No, we're not saying that babies are innocent. And as a result of that innocence, they go to heaven. But we are saying that before a child is capable of repenting and believing the gospel, the gospel can savingly and sovereignly be applied to their lives. If babies are in the kingdom then those who die as babies or as young children are part of the kingdom. That children who die in infancy go to be with the Lord. The kingdom belongs to such. Some of you are looking at me and wondering if I've lost the plot and uh, I've become unorthodox. So we must ask, is there any other biblical portion of Scripture that tells us that it's possible for a baby or a child to be regenerated. Well, you remember, John, the Baptist was full of the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. God even worked in his heart while he was an embryo in the womb of his mother. God can do that. It's not the usual way that God works. It was an exception But it tells us that God can do that. He can apply the blessings of salvation before the age of understanding. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when David's sin with Bathsheba was discovered and Nathan announces that the son born to him would die. And David goes into a time of mourning, fasting, and lying on the ground. And he's so distressed that the his servants are afraid, afraid to bring to him the news that the baby had died. But they're amazed when he is told of his reaction. He got up from the ground, washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and went into the tabernacle to worship. And they say, why are you acting in this way? Before the baby died, you were in a state of grief. After the, the state of grief, you go to worship. And David answers like this, and it's very significant. He says, can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. He is confident that he will see his son again. 
Now, some people suggest that David, in a heightened state of emotion, is simply saying something that he wishes was true. But the opposite is true. The heightened state of emotion was before the baby died. He was asking that God might be merciful and spur the child. But after the child dies, he is filled with a dignified confidence that the baby was with the Lord and that he would see him again. I will go to him, he says, but he cannot come to me. His grief is dignified by this quiet confidence that the child is with the Lord. I compare that reaction with the news of the death of another son, Absalom, in 2 Samuel 18. He went up uh, to the room over the gateway. He opened uh, the, the windows and he wept, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, would to God that I had died instead of you, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom. Why the difference in response between the death of his two sons? Because David knew that Absalom lived in open rebellion against God and he knew that he would never see him again. The baby who died, David was convinced that he would see again. And what I am saying is that children who die in infancy go to be with the Lord. Babies go to heaven. Now you're maybe asking, does anyone else agree with Stephen? Or is this something that he has made up in his head to deal with a difficult pastoral situation? Well, Gail does, partially, not totally with me, but she, that's usual for her. She doesn't agree with me all the time. Um, she thinks maybe I'm going a, a, a little too far, but in saying that all babies and children go to heaven. But John Calvin does. John Calvin says in this passage, it would be cruel to exclude that age from the grace of redemption. Charles Hodge does. He comments on this passage. He tells us that such is the kingdom of heaven as if heaven is in great measure composed of the souls of redeemed infants. Ah, you say, they were Presbyterians. And they were. But you see, on this point, they're not arguing from a Presbyterian perspective or a Presbyterian position. It was the general point being made that children dying in infancy go to be with Jesus. But also the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon echoed this. He says on this passage, I'm not inclined to get away from the plain sense of the text, nor to suggest it merely means means that uh, the kingdom consists of those who are childlike. It is clear that he intended such children as these who were before him of such is the kingdom of God. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith says, infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. John MacArthur has written that lovely book, Safe in the Arms of God. That he argues that all babies dying in infancy, young children dying as children, go to be with the Lord. John Newton, the great hymn writer, believed that there would be more um, uh, children in heaven than adults. That heaven would be full of the redeemed souls of, of children. Now, isn't that a great comfort to grieving parents who have lost little ones? 
Maybe years ago you lost a baby before birth or after birth, and everyone else has forgotten, but you have never forgotten. You still grieve the loss of that little one as if it were yesterday. Take comfort from the words of Jesus. Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. They are with the Lord, safe in the arms of Jesus. And one day, if you are a believer, you will see them again. The comfort Jesus explains. The concern that Jesus displays, the challenge that Jesus gives, the comfort that Jesus explains. The last thing I want you to notice is the comparison that Jesus makes. Look at verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child (coughs) shall not enter it. Now, what did Jesus mean here? Well, remember, he has just taken in his arms and blessed babies and called young children to himself. Now, what is the outstanding characteristic of children and young babies? Well, they're absolutely helpless. They're, they're dependent, absolutely dependent on someone else, on their parents. No child could survive their early years without the help of another. They are dependent upon others for feeding, for clothing, for housing, for bathing, for protection. They're helpless in and of themselves. That, says Jesus, is how you receive the kingdom, just like a little child, just like somebody who's absolutely helpless and dependent on someone else. You humble yourself. And you receive the kingdom from the hand of Jesus. R. Kent Hughes says of this passage, we must not think a child cannot come to God until he is a man. But a man cannot come to God until he becomes a child. That you must humble yourself. Have that childlike spirit that, that, that just takes from the hand of Jesus what is offered. You just take it. There's a simple trust in children. They don't ask where the money comes. If there's enough money, whatever our children used to say, you know, can we get this or can we go here? And I, we used to say to them, no, we've no money. And they would say, well, just go to the bank and get more. They, they didn't ask where the money came from. They just trusted the Lord. Uh, there's that naive trust. Bruce Lawson and I hesitated to tell this story. But uh, he tells of a time, the commentator tells of a time when he was on holiday in America. And they were passing this signpost and it said, Naturist Resort. And he thought it was a nature resort. But it was a naturist resort. So they turned the car and they drove down the lane. And then suddenly they realized they were in a nudist camp. And they were horrified. And they turned the car around. They were... They were driving away uh, with the young children in the back. And then two people came cycling towards them with not a stitch on them on their bicycles. And the little boy in the back says, Mommy, Mommy, look at him. Look at them. Look at them. And, and the parents were really uh, embarrassed, didn't know quite what to say. Look at them. Tried to change the subject. Mommy, look at them. Look at them. They have no helmets on. A naive, simple, heartfelt trust. That's what Jesus is calling for. 
Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look on me, a little child, pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. That's, that's the way you must come. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate the gospel. The older you become, children don't overcomplicate the gospel. They say, oh, I have to believe in Jesus. I'll believe in Jesus. They just trust him. And they take from him, from his hand, the salvation that he offers. But when you're older, you have to, oh, how is this going to affect my family? How is this going to uh, uh, affect my parents? How am I going to tell my friends? Do I feel my sin keenly enough? Uh, uh, am I convinced that uh, that all of this is true? Is the Bible? And, and you complicate it. You overthink it. Jesus says, just come like a little child, naively, simply, and just trust in me. You need to come like a little child to enter the kingdom. The concern Jesus displays, the challenge Jesus gives, the comfort that Jesus explains, and the comparison that Jesus makes. Amen.